take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 27. Psalm 27 this morning. And um, I just have a question to ask as we start this morning. Does it matter if your private life matches your public life? When you've gone on record about your faith, how should you then live in private? These are questions that come to mind after we read Psalm 27 and really the two halves of Psalm 27. Last week we were uh, in the first six verses, and we, we studied what I called the public face of faith. David put forth a, a public testimony, right? uh, boldly proclaiming his faith, his confidence in the Lord, making daring claims, right? saying things like uh, in verse 2, or rather in verse 3, if an enemy army surrounds me, I will not be afraid. My heart will not fear. I'll be confident. If the enemy surrounds me, if a if whole army encamps against me, I will not be afraid. Well, that seems like a, a rather daring thing to say. And yet, David has made those claims. The problem, of course, is once you make a claim like that publicly, then you have to live up to it. Right? Because you put yourself out there. And you can't then go around and constantly be troubled by anxiety and fear. Right? When you have gone on record saying that God is your refuge and your salvation. right? Of course, as Christians, you can actually do that. Many Christians do. Many Christians publicly proclaim their faith. I mean, that's what, what believer baptism is all about, right? Is, is in a public way, on display for others to see, you stand up and you say, I trust in Christ. And so we, we proclaim publicly. We, we go through that, that very public um, action, ritual, if you want to call it that, I suppose. And then, in many cases, we, we continue to struggle with anxiety, with fear. And so we can do it, but I think that also explains why, as Christians, we so often have such a weak testimony with those who are outside the faith. Because if we say that we're trusting in Christ and then we live a life that is characterized by anxiety, we're not living consistently with what we say we believe. David has made a public proclamation. Right? He has boldly proclaimed his faith. And really, of the two, I think that's the easier thing to do. It's easier to, to uh, give a public testimony of your faith. It's easier to boast of your faith in public than it is to live that way in private. This, by the way, is what makes the second half of Psalm 27 so shocking, so challenging, right? almost, almost appearing to be contradictory. Because instead of boasting in his confidence and his courage... The second half of Psalm 27, David prays with desperation. I want to read the psalm, and as we do, I want to try to demonstrate to you this morning that I don't think that David is being inconsistent at all. In fact, I think that David's private prayers are necessary. They are a necessary component of his public persona of faith. 
And I think if we're going to publicly declare that we have faith in the Lord, and we're going to publicly declare that we are trusting in God, that he is our refuge and our strength, then we're going to have to learn to pray like David prays in private. Because I don't think we can really separate the two, even though on the surface they appear to contradict one another. Now, I will just say this at the, at the very beginning here, that I do not feel like I can do justice to the tone and the emotion of what David is writing here. I fear that in preaching this message, I am going to, um, to empty out much of the soul of this song. Okay? And I don't want to do that, but I would just say this to you, that the best protection against that for you is that you probably need to, to spend some time after this reading through Psalm 27 yourself and, and, and really trying to get a picture and a sense of what David was feeling as he was, was writing this and what he was going through. Because I think that will give us a, a, a better sense of it. Um, I, you know, sometimes we miss the forest for the trees. And I want to be careful not to do that, but I just don't feel confident that I can accomplish that this morning. So I'll just tell you that right up front. That's my disclaimer. So let's look at Psalm 27. And I'll have it up on the screen for you here. And, uh, and, and you can just read it along with me. We'll read it together and go through Psalm 27. And I want to see the two parts of the psalm, and then we're going to try to see how they work together. So let's begin there in verse 1. David says, and you can read this here, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble... He shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Now here, we pause for a moment. Because at this point, at the end of verse 6, we come to a dramatic shift in both tone and language as David begins to pray the Lord and ask for his mercy. Let's continue. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. Unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We're going to stop there and hold on to verse 14. What, I, what I'd like for us to look at this morning as we go through this song, and especially the second half here, is what I call the private heart of faith a private heart of faith this is a look at how David dealt with the trials and the pressures of life and as we, even as we read these verses that we just read them a moment ago they sound so different you have David at, at first b boldly saying hey it doesn't matter how many enemies come around doesn't matter what the circumstances are. I'm not going to be afraid. I have nothing to fear. 
an enemy comes, the enemy surrounds me, they attack, and at the moment when it seems like they're going to be victorious, they fall, and I still stand. And David says, this is what I experience, and this is what my faith is all about. It's about victory. It's about winning. It's about standing here and seeing God do great things, and I know he's going to. And then the next breath, it's crying out, saying, Lord, don't forsake me. Lord, don't turn me over to my enemies. Lord, listen to me and hear my prayer. Two very different sounding things. And yet I think that they, they go together. Because David's public testimony displayed a faith that was bold and was daring. And his private prayer displays something quite different but I think also necessary. If I could say it in a sentence, I would say it this way. Private faith leads us to cast ourselves on God's help and strengthen ourselves in Him. Private faith leads us to cast ourselves on God's help and strengthen ourselves in Him. Have you ever prayed and asked God to hear your prayer? Have you ever done that? It's kind of like asking someone if you can ask them a question, right? Because you've already done the thing that you are asking if you can do, right? But, but that's what David does here in verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy upon me and answer me. David prays that God would hear his prayer. And it, it, it may seem kind of strange to do that. But this is David's way of acknowledging that he doesn't have a right to pray and expect God to hear him. He doesn't have a right to this. It's only God's mercy that allows him to hear an answer to his prayer. It's important for us to notice, too, that, that in, in beginning this prayer here in verse 7, it comes right on the heels of what David has said in verses 4 through 6, which is where he made a commitment to praising and worshiping God, right? Verses 4 through 6, verse 4, one thing I desire. What do I desire? To be in the Lord's house, to be in his presence. And God, that's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to be there, and I'm going to worship you, and I'm going to sing your praises. And then on the heels of that, he says, Lord, hear my prayer. And I think this helps us to see right off the bat here that prayer is, is an act of fellowship. Prayer is, is not David here asking God to put a stamp of approval on David's plans. It's David who is already committed to being in fellowship with God and worshiping God. Now he comes and he prays and he asks God to hear him. But he does that because this is about his relationship with the Lord. David knows God. He's committed to serving and worshiping God. And so it's natural then that he would want and seek the Lord's response. It's natural that he would pray. This is a natural part of life for those who would rely on God to be their light and salvation. You see, prayer is an admission of our own weakness. It's an admission of our, in, of our inability to stand up on our own two feet. We don't really like that. We want to think of ourselves as independent and strong and able to take care of ourselves. But when we pray, we realize we're doing something completely different. We're coming to God and we're acknowledging, God, we need you. We can't do this on our own. Really, what David's prayer is, and the reason that he begins his prayer this way, Lord, hear me. Lord, listen and answer me. Be merciful. What David is asking God to do is he's asking God to stoop down to his level. David is recognizing, God, you are exalted. You are the king above all kings. And what I need more than anything is for you to come down to where I am because I can't get up to where you are. That's what prayer really is about. It's about us asking God to come down to our level. God, I need you here right now. I need you to come down to be merciful to me, to condescend, right? 
We think of uh, when, when, when someone is condescending toward us, that's not really a good thing, right? That's an offensive thing, when someone speaks to us in a condescending way. The reason for that, by the way, is because we consider ourselves equals, right? It's insulting to me if you speak to me in a condescending way. But it's not insulting to my child if I speak to them as a child, because that's what they are. So it's just a different thing. See, I'm not, when, when you talk with equals, it, we don't speak down to one another. We don't condescend because that's it's, it's rude. But that's not what we're talking about with God. See, when we come to God in prayer, we are acknowledging that we are like children. God, I need your help. God, I need you to come down here where I'm at. Because I can't do this. I can't see what I need to see. I can't stand. I can't do what I need to do. I need your help. God, will you come down here to my level? That's what David is doing, and that's what prayer is, ultimately. Us asking God to stoop down to our level, to involve himself in our lives in such a way that he transforms our circumstances to do good for us rather than to harm us. We are asking God, God, I want you to be a part of my life. as I've I've thought a lot this week about the nature of prayer and what prayer really is all about because David's example here it just seems to to, to really encapsulate what prayer is in its essence and the way that we often think about prayer I think is wrong I think we're tempted to to think of prayer in other ways and I'm going to get into some of that here in a little bit but I think that that if we understand that, that prayer is first and foremost us asking God to come down to our level. God, I need you to be here, right here with me where I'm at right now. Because there's, there's things going on in my life that I can't control. There's things going on in my life that, that honestly terrify me. And I don't know what to do about them, and I can't fix them, and I can't change them, and I'm, I'm powerless. And so I need you to come... And I need you to involve yourself in such a way that you transform these circumstances. Not turning everything into roses. But I need you to make these circumstances, I need you to bring out good in my life here. I need you to do something in these circumstances so that this benefits me. That's what we're asking God to do when we pray. And so... David here giving us, showing us the private heart of faith. And I think what it involves here, first of all, or or maybe mostly is this. It's a desperate plea for help. Again, this is prayer acknowledging that we are in need of help. So you say, well, it seems like a really strikingly different tone. David, in the first six verses, is telling everybody how great his faith is. God is going to come through. God is going to do something amazing. God always does. He'll give victory. He'll defeat the enemies. And in the next breath, David's going, God, I am desperate. I need your help. But again, I don't think we should see this as David being two-faced. You know? He's bold over here, and he's cowardly over here. No. This is David understanding who he is and understanding who God is and desperately seeking help from the Lord. It's consistent with his boldness, his confidence. And we're going to see here that his confidence is well-placed. But I want you to think about this, too. Why do we pray? Why do we pray? I meant, to tell my, I meant to talk to my wife about this beforehand, and I didn't, so I apologize right up front. Okay, just say this. I meant to run this by her, and I didn't do that. So. But as many of you know, the ladies just got back from the WFBC ladies' retreat up at Green Lake. Several of you were there. I hope you had a great time. Pauletta had a significant role in planning and coordinating the retreat. Um, she went to bed on Wednesday night, very, very tired, but still having a lot to do before she left for Green Lake on Thursday morning. And uh, she went to bed and she prayed. And she asked God to help her rest and get a good night's sleep because she needed a good night's sleep. 
And then she was promptly woken up about half a dozen times Wednesday night during the night because first of all, one of our kids was complaining about their arm hurting and then another one complaining about their stomach hurting and pretty soon that one was throwing up multiple times. I didn't keep track, but I think we were up at least half a dozen times cleaning up messes and comforting our children. At one point during the evening, during the, the, the times when we were awake, um, which is most of the night, I guess, Paulette said to me something along the lines, I'm not quoting directly here, but she said, why did I even pray for rest? When this is the kind of night that we have. And, I, and please understand, I'm not sharing this to make fun of my wife, nor am I sharing this in, in, in an attempt to point out some sort of spiritual flaw. Um, I think that every single one of us has been there more than once. Why did I even pray for this? I prayed and look what happened. I prayed for a, night's, a good night's rest and look what happened. could have happened any other night. It had to be tonight, right? And you guys know what I'm talking about. You've been there. The reason that I'm sharing this with you is because the Lord brought this passage to my mind. Psalm 27. When she asked that question. And so... It forced me to reevaluate why do I pray? So again, I'm not sharing this to shame my wife. I'm sharing this so that you'll understand what I've been thinking about then for the last several days. Why do I pray? What am I praying for? What's the purpose? And in a moment of frustration, that question is asked. But I think that it's answered, at least in part, here in Psalm 27, especially by the next verse. Look at verse 8. David says, When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. Why do we pray? Why do we seek the Lord's face? Is it pragmatic? Because we have problems that we need to be solved, and so we pray and we ask God to fix the problems. I think that's how we approach prayer a lot of times. I think that's how I approach prayer a lot of times. I've got a problem. It needs to be solved. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask God to do something about my problem. Listen, we pray in faith. We pray believing that God can and will answer our prayers and do for us what we ask. We pray in faith. We trust that the God who delivered Israel at the Red Sea, the God who delivered David from the javelin at the hand of Saul, will deliver us from our trials. But when this is what prayer is to us, then it's a very pragmatic thing. It's a business transaction. If that's the way we look at prayer, then it becomes essentially a trade where I trade God's help for prayer. I'll offer up prayer and God, you'll kick in with the help that I need. I'll ask for what I think I need and you'll give it to me. Because it's what God does, right? He, he blesses his children. He wants to give us what we ask for. And so we pray in faith. And we believe that God wants to give us what we ask for. And so we ask for things. And who can criticize that, right? I know I'm, I'm treading on thin ice here. Who can criticize that? Of course we pray and ask God for things. Of course we ask God to meet our needs. Of course we ask God to give us what, uh, what we desire and what we feel we need. But David's 
response here in verse 8, or David's words here in verse 8, I think suggest to us that we are looking at prayer the wrong way, if that's how we think of prayer. The prayer is about something else, really. Prayer for David here is not just a means to an end. Prayer is a central part of his fellowship with the Lord. Remember back what he said in verse 4. There was one thing that he desired above all else, right? And what was it? To dwell in the house of the Lord, right? To experience his beauty, to inquire in his temple. This was what David's heart was set upon. In verse 8, he says that prayer is seeking the Lord's face. His public profession of faith was built on the foundation of his private life of worship and fellowship with the Lord. That's why I think these two things are consistent. David could boldly proclaim in public his confidence that God would come through. Because he was at home and in private, desperately crying out to the Lord, not for God to give him things. He was saying, Lord, you said seek my face. That's what I'm doing. I'm seeking your face. You said draw near. God, that's what I'm doing. I'm drawing near. I want to be with you. I want to be near you. That's what David is saying here. He wants to know the Lord. He wants to know his goodness, his beauty, is the word that he uses back in verse 4. And so if we want to know his goodness and we want to know him, then we have to spend time with him in private seeking his face. You can't just show up on Sunday morning and make an appearance at the 1045 worship service and imagine that you have a vibrant and living faith. Because it's not about this event. It's about daily and continuously seeking the Lord's face. That's what, that's what it's about. That's what prayer is about. That's what David is talking about here. So he comes to the Lord. He's desperately seeking help. But understand this. I think this, this principle is very important. We must seek his face in private. If we're going to proclaim his name publicly and have credibility, we're going to have to seek his face in private. And that's exactly what David is doing here in verse 8, and I think it's very important, and it helps us to answer this question. See, when we make prayer a pragmatic thing, when we make this, take this transactional approach where I pray, I send up my prayers, and God in turn sends down his blessings, then we get frustrated because God doesn't seem to answer us. He doesn't seem to respond to us. Why doesn't he answer our prayers? Why doesn't he give us better days and nights when we ask for them? Why doesn't he give us more money when we make the request? Why doesn't he smooth things out with our spouse or with our family? Why doesn't he heal us physically from our sickness or our weakness? And the reason we struggle with those questions is that we're looking at prayer in the wrong way. We're looking at prayer in terms of a transaction. God, I prayed and you didn't fulfill your end of the deal. God, I sent up my prayers. Where's my blessing? Maybe we wouldn't say it that way, but that's how we're acting. That's the temptation that we face when we pray and we want God to do something and then he doesn't do it and we're disappointed because our heart was set on the thing that we wanted from God. Our heart was not set on the Lord. See, we weren't seeking his face. We were seeking what he would do for us. We're looking for the blessings. And the blessings have to fit our requests. But our eyes are clearly not on the giver of the blessings. But here's the thing. When we change our focus, if instead of that, if we start to focus on prayer as a means of fellowship, prayer as seeking God's face, 
when we realize that God has said, seek my face. And our heart, our heart responds by saying, Lord, I, I will seek your face. And see, then our prayer will be answered every time. Because when what we're really seeking is, God, I need you here intervening in my life right now. God, I need you. I need your face. I need your presence right now. I need to know you're here. God, I need to see you and your beauty and your goodness and your grace. Guess what? God said, that's what I, that's what I want you to pray. God's going to fulfill the prayer. He's going to answer our prayer. We're going to receive what we ask for. When you seek God's face, you will find him every time. Because you're doing what he has asked you to do. This kind of prayer is always successful. Not successful in terms of getting a material or earthly blessing. But successful in bringing us into close communion with the Lord. Okay. And that's really what the focus of this is about. Look at the next verses, verse 9 and 10. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my mother and my father forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. See, what David is interested in, what he's concerned with here, is fellowship with the Lord. He wants close communion with God. What David is praying here is, Lord, I want to be close to you. Don't turn your face away from me. Don't let me go. I think it's interesting that he uses the word help here in verse 9. You have been my help, he says. It's exactly the same word that's used by God in Genesis 2.18 when he said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Eve was handcrafted by God to meet Adam's need. Now, some people have read Genesis 2 as if calling Eve Adam's helper is an insult. As if it's degrading to women to say that Eve was created to be Adam's helper. But that nothing could be further from the truth. God is my helper. How could comparing Eve to God be a bad thing? It's not degrading. Understand what, what that verse or what that word indicates is that God designed Eve to supply what Adam lacked. When God created Eve, it was because Adam was alone and it was not good for him to be alone. And so God created Eve to be a companion to Adam to fulfill the need that he had. This was a custom fit. And here in Psalm 27, David says, God, you are my helper. So that just as Eve was created with Adam in mind to fit him perfectly, David is saying, God, you are the thing that I need. You are the one who is able to supply what I lack. And no matter how close or how perfect any human relationship is, there's one fatal flaw in every human relationship. One, that it will always end. Whatever relationship you have with another human being in this life always ends. At some point, there's an end. We don't like that. Sometimes it ends because relationships break down, because we don't get along, or we have conflict, and it brings break into a relationship. Other times it ends in the way that all human things end, which is in death. That's what David, I think, is getting at in verse 10 when he says, my father and my mother forsake me. He says, not if, but when they leave me. Because all human relationships ultimately end the same way, with separation. Others may help us. Others may even be, there may be someone who is even our God-ordained helper, as Eve was to Adam. But it is the Lord 
who will take care of us when we're separated from them. So even as David's heart cries out here in desperation, he knows that God will hear him and will answer him. I think it's significant that, that, that that's what he says here, that, listen, God, you have been my help. You're, you have the perfect design to meet my need. The one thing I can't get anywhere else, the one thing that no other human relationship can supply, you can supply. Because my relationship with God doesn't end at death. My relationship with God is permanent. This, I think on the other side of that coin, is this truth that God is faithful. And so we pray to him because he's faithful. That's what David is doing here. His prayer is not based on getting a right outcome. It's not based on, uh, rather, it's based on drawing near to the Lord who will be there every time to gather him up. That's the, that's the meaning of the word take care there in verse 10. Gather him up. Even when your parents or your spouse let you go, the Lord will gather you to himself. And in his presence you'll find peace and comfort. And so if you know the Lord, if you've trusted in him as the God of your salvation, then you can rely on him. You can rely on him to provide the permanence that no other relationship can supply. Because even when mother and father forsake you, God will take you up. He will draw you to himself and gather you up. Now, I want you just to point out here one more thing in verses 11 and 12. Because again, David is seeking help. Now, when we pray, again, I'm not, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it's wrong for us to ask for things. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray and ask God to provide or God to supply our needs or God to meet this need or that need. Okay. But if we keep our focus in prayer on fellowship with Him, the prayer is about me walking with God, about me uh, uh, you know, asking God to come down to my level, to be in my life, then that transforms how we think about it. Then our prayer always works because when I'm praying, I'm asking God to come and be with me. Now, maybe my circumstances aren't going to get better. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe we're going to pray and ask God for a good night and the kids are going to be sick and we're going to be up all night. even in that, he's there with us. That's the confidence. That's the assurance that David is looking for. He says, God, don't turn away from me. Don't turn your back on me. I want you to be close to me. That's where the, David's confidence lies then. And notice what he says in verse 11 and 12. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. God doesn't protect us from trouble and trials when we only pray for help. He protects us when we follow his path, and I think that's what David is getting at here. You see, David, the, the analogy that comes to my mind is, is the, the one we see in Psalm 23. It's the shepherd of the sheep. Now, if a sheep comes under attack by a, a lion or a wolf or a bear, what's the shepherd going to do? He's going to step in and fight to protect the sheep. But most of the action of protecting the sheep comes way before that ever happens, right? See, the, the shepherd, he does all this work of preparing and guiding and directing the sheep and gathering them together in the flock and keeping them together. And if the sheep will just follow the shepherd's instruction, right? If they just stay gathered together with the other sheep in the flock, and they'll just follow the path that he lays out for them, then it's going to be pretty unusual that they're going to have to worry about attack from a lion or a bear. 
or wolf because the shepherd is prepared for that and they just simply follow his directions. But what happens when the sheep decides to wander off on its own and it's isolated from the flock and it goes away from the shepherd and away from the trail? That's when the sheep is put in danger, right? And I think that's the, that's the picture here of what David is, is saying. Remember, the, the, the whole circumstance of the psalm, David is surrounded with enemies. He's facing a real legitimate threat of enemies and an opposition. But he's confident. He's confident. He boldly proclaims his confidence. Why? Because he's praying desperately for God to help. And he trusts in the Lord. And one of the things he's asking God for here is to guide him and teach him to stay on the path. I think David understands his own tendency to, to kind of wander and go his own way. And what happens? When he wanders and goes his own way, he brings on himself trouble and trials. He puts himself at risk. He makes himself vulnerable. And so what does he do? He prays that the Lord would protect him. Not by fighting off the enemies, but by keeping him on the path. You see, this is where if we understand that most of our problems come when we decide to wander and go our own way. That's where most of our problems come in. We would do well to pray not that God would remove the problems, but that he would help us to stay on the path. We pray and we seek his help. And so that's what David is doing. He's praying not just because he trusts God's faithfulness, but he's also praying because he wants to do God's will. And we pray. Because prayer reveals our weakness, our need. We pray because we want to do his will, and we need his help. Now, verse 13 is an interesting verse. Do you see how the first words of verse 13 are all in italics? If you look at there in your Bible, you'll see that in most, at least, I don't know if all translations do that, but, but they should. What that means to us is that those, those words are not actually a part of the original Hebrew text. They were supplied by the translators. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean anything bad, okay? Um, it's necessary when you're moving from one, one language to another to sometimes supply words that are implied in the original language, okay? And so sometimes it's necessary to fill in a word here or there because it's implied, but it's not actually written in the language, or we fill it in, okay? In this case, there's something else here I think that's interesting. David is intentionally leaving this verse incomplete. It's what's called an ellipsis. We do it the same thing. In our writing, we'll leave a quotation or we'll leave a line incomplete on purpose. In this case, it, it, it emphasizes here the, the great emotion and the great uh, uh, the weight of feeling that David had as he's writing about a situation and the goodness of God. And so the translators here add, I would have lost heart. But what David really says is, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And he just lets it drop. And we want to go, but then what? <laughs> if I lacked faith in God, if I didn't trust the Lord, then... David doesn't answer. He doesn't tell us. What would his life be if he didn't have faith in the Lord? He boasts in those opening verses of his trust in the Lord, and then he cries out desperately for God's help. But what would happen to him if he didn't actually believe in the goodness of God. Can a man live in this world without faith in God? Well, yes, sort of. 
Can a man have boldness to stand before his enemies, knowing that it is not in their power to harm him? No. Not without faith in the goodness of God. Can a man know any relationship that, that continues beyond the bounds of this life and the limits of his human flesh? No. Not if he doesn't believe in the goodness of God. Can a man be sure he's in the right path that will lead him to safety? No. Not if he doesn't believe in the goodness of God. You see, David, I think, leaves this blank because it's a way of explaining his desperation here. This is why David prays the way that he prays. Because he understands that without faith, all is lost. He can proclaim boldly and confidently in public because when he's in private, he is praying and seeking God's face, desperately searching for God to strengthen him and give him help. This is what the life of faith is about. This is what we are to do as Christians. Yes, we should boldly proclaim our faith and our confidence in God. And at the same time, we should be seeking his face. We should be casting ourselves on his And we should be strengthening ourselves in him. That's what David is doing here. He's acknowledging that it is only by faith in God that he has any hope at all. And it's almost as if he can't complete the sentence. He says, if I had not believed, dot, dot, dot. I don't even want to think about it. What would it, what would it be like if I didn't know the goodness of God? What would it be like if I didn't believe that God would actually, would actually be here with me and help me? I mean, this is everything. And so, I think as we look at the psalm and we look at what David here says, the only way for us to truly live, to know the, the confidence and the peace and the hope of God in the face of uncertainties is if we seek the face of God. That's what we're doing when we pray. Like the psalmist, our hearts ache when we think of what things would be like if we didn't know the grace of God. What is your life like today? If you have never turned from your sin. I know that up until this point, everything I'm saying, I'm speaking here to, to people who are believers, people who have faith in the Lord, who believe that God is good to us, that God is good to us as sinners who don't deserve it. But what about you today? If, if, you, if you don't know the Lord, if you've never trusted in Him, then, then what do we put in that blank? David said he believed. He said, unless I had believed... If you don't believe, what is your life like? Do you have peace? Do you have hope of eternal life? Do you have the comfort of knowing that God is on your side? These are the things David has spoken of, the things he's prayed about, the things that he has demonstrated here. That you can have peace and hope and security. Well, if you've never trusted in the Lord, then you need to do what David did. You need to believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again. And you will see the goodness of God. I'm not talking about material blessings. I'm not talking about God solving all your problems and life will be roses. What I'm saying is that God will be with you. You will see his face in this life. You will experience his presence and his help and his comfort and his strength and his guidance. That's what it means to know him. Well, there's still one verse left we haven't studied, haven't read. It's the moral of the story, the conclusion of the psalm. We're going to end with this. 
David here drives the message home. Verse 14, he says, wait on the Lord. This is, I don't believe, part of David's prayer. This is David maybe turning back and offering us a public word of, admonish, of admonition here. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Are you troubled today by some difficulty or trial? Some weakness in yourself, maybe physical, maybe spiritual? Some situation which is beyond your control, then, then wait on the Lord. I like this. He doesn't say, by the way, in verse 14, he doesn't say wait for an answer from the Lord. Because this is the answer. This is the answer to your prayer, and this is the answer to your need. Wait on the Lord. You ought to publicly proclaim your faith in God and your confidence that he will deliver. And you ought to desperately seek the Lord in prayer, seeking his presence and his help. And we do it because we believe that he's good. Kirkpatrick says this, that in this verse 14, the psalmist, the psalmist's faith rebukes his faintness. Let your faith rebuke your faintness. When you're weak and you're troubled and you're anxious, let your faith rebuke your fear. You might cry out, Unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I will respond to you. Yes, but you have believed. So be strong and courageous as you wait on the Lord. That's the message of Psalm 27. Let's close with prayer.